Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, Vietnam! I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And welcome to the latest episode of the Movie Scramble podcast. We are down a musketeer tonight. It is just myself and John. And we're going to do things a little bit differently. Not because Simi's not here, but purely because the cinemas aren't open. So we've decided to create a bit of a Hitchcock retrospective. And we are kicking things off with 1964's Marnie and 1958's Vertigo. Now, no matter what your opinion is on Hitchcock, he is undoubtedly one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, whether you agree with his sexual politics or not, there's no denying that he has had one of the biggest impacts on cinema of any director you can possibly think of. So, without further ado, let's dive into our first movie tonight, which is Marnie. Do you know what I am? I'm Minnie Q Thief. I'm, I'm a thief and a liar and... Well, it seems to be my misfortune to have fallen in love with a thief and a liar. In love. Oh, Mark, if you love me, you'll let me go. Did you have a tough childhood, Mrs. Taylor? Not particularly. I think you did. I think you've had a hard, tough climb. You don't love me. I'm just something you caught. You think I'm some kind of animal you've trapped. That's right, you are. And I've caught something really wild this time, haven't I? I tracked you and caught you, and by God, I'm going to keep you. It stars Tippi Hedren and the dearly departed Sean Connery, who actually only passed a few short weeks ago. And the film focuses around the titular character, Marnie, who is something of an elusive thief who appears to flip from job to job, managing to steal from her bosses along the way. She manages to get so far along until she meets Mark, played by Sean Connery, who catches her in the act and forces her to marry him as a weird way of punishment. John, this is your first time watching Marnie in quite a while. What was your thoughts kind of looking back on it? Initially, I was very surprised that I didn't really relate to the sexual politics of it in any way. It did date it in quite a big way, I must say. Mm-hmm. And I almost felt a little bit disappointed with the film when I watched it. I didn't connect with a lot of the characters and I didn't get as much out of it as I thought. Now, what I did was I watched it again about two or three days ago. I'd watched it maybe about three weeks ago. And the second watch of it, I far more enjoyed just because I got really, really into it this time. It was okay. it was almost like a, a completely different film for me just because of the the way that I approached it the second time, knowing the sexual politics of the time and not discounting that, but putting that to the side and focusing more on the story elements and the the, the various Hitchcock elements that tend to crop up on an awful lot of these films. So, yeah, I, I did actually really enjoy it and I, I surprised myself by, by saying that for the second time, but I did get more out of it. What did you think? Yeah, no, I, I can understand where you're coming from. When I watched this, this was a few weeks ago, I was kind of appalled. Like, and I listen, I know that Hitchcock's got some, you know, there's some issues and misogyny that kind of peppered through his entire portfolio of work. But watching this was so striking because, you know, every single woman that you meet in the plot is really problematic. You know, Marnie herself is a thief. Her mother is obviously, you know, the reformed whore or whatever you want to call it. And just that there's Mark's sister-in-law who's like jealous and scheming and all these like horrible female characters and there was nothing in it that I could connect to at all not even when Marnie shown her vulnerable side and she's talking about her upbringing her past there was so much for it to me that was just so it just felt really alienating because it was very very like you know look at all these problem women with their emotional issues like it just felt like that watching it I actually thought it was quite an interesting performance from Sean Connery. I've not really seen, I mean, I've seen some of his work. I've seen like Highlander and The Untouchables and stuff like that, but I've never seen him in a kind of like serious early role apart from James Bond. So I was intrigued by his performance. But again, it's kind of marred by the whole sexual assault controversy because there obviously is a, a rape scene or an alluded rape scene as well. And for me, it was just 
there was all the traits of a Hitchcock movie. You know, there was, you know, at one point I actually think that Marnie actually calls herself Marion when she's on the run, which of course is a straight lift out of, of Psycho. But for me, it felt, for someone who loves Frenzy, I found this movie quite alienating, actually. Did you think that, I mean, for me, it didn't really feel like a Hitchcock at times. Did you kind of get that impression as well? or It did, and I can understand why a lot of people think it is a sort of a second-tier Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. Basically because it doesn't have the, the same shock value as a lot of Hitchcock films have. There's usually some sort of terrifying thriller element to them, and they're marketed in that way, and they, they deliver. But in this case... It was more of a psychological thriller than anything else. It was more about Marnie's internal struggles rather than her external struggles. So it was a wee bit more difficult to to tune into. I thought that the central performance was, it must have been a very difficult one because it's a difficult character to, to kind of get your head around. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking in terms of actors getting their, their head around certain characters because this isn't a conventional female lead character at all there's a lot of depth to her but there's a lot of trauma there as well and at times she seems overly hysterical but that's all fitting with the character as well that's that's what she is actually like and that's what she uh, comes across as which is difficult to understand at first but then you, you do get there and you can see right ah yeah that's that's why she's acting in that way that's why she's aloof or she, she's Almost, almost like being out of her own body at times, in, te- mm-hmm. in terms of like a, a reaction to everyone around her. A whole theme running through it where she can't be touched in any way. She just doesn't want the touch of a man or anybody. Obviously, that relates back to something that happened to her previously. I'm trying to avoid spoilers, obviously, because I want people to see this film, even if, if they haven't seen it for years. It's one of these mm-hmm. films that you should take a look at occasionally just to refresh your memory on it. But yeah, as I said, there's that element of where she doesn't want to be touched. But then you get to a point where she's interacting with her mother and mm-hmm. her mother doesn't want to be touched either. So you say, oh, well, is this where she's getting it from? So there's there's lots of wee nice elements that are sort of brought in add to the, the intrigue. And it, it kind of fills out the story an awful lot more because if you just look at the story on its own, it's almost like a, a compulsive thief. She's mm-hmm. stealing this money, changing her identity, moving on, doing exactly the same thing. But it's not as if she's doing it like sort of often. She takes a good long while. It's like a sort of one of these long cons, if you like. Mm-hmm. She gets herself settled into a place, steals a sub- substantial amount of money, moves on to the next one, does the same thing again. But there's this whole compulsion about her, which it plays really well. But in the way that they try to get that across, is they, they take the, they, I was surprised actually how much she took her time with this film mm-hmm. because they, obviously there's the initial scene where she's working uh, in an office and she goes through the whole process of stealing everything and all that and you get introduced to the character of Mark quite early on because mm-hmm. he's a client of theirs and then it takes it from there and it basically takes you through everything. There's, there's no secrecy about what she does. There's no mystery or anything. Yeah. The mystery is all about herself it's all within her mind and everything like that so it's a strange one it's not a a, a straightforward story as far as I was concerned yeah I think that and it kind of sets a tone from that because once you see her sort of you kind of realize that she's the woman they're talking about that's stolen from the office she goes home to visit her mother and she kind of as you say it kind of looks like she's having this sort of out of body experience her eyes aren't quite focused and you know she says something to her mum about you know yeah that's because you don't really love me and straight Mm. away you're like oh, wow, this is kind of, like, she's a very emotionally complex character. And in a way, it kind of reminded me almost of, like, Sally Bowles from Cabaret, that kind of vulnerable sort of Liza Minnelli performance. Now, I know a lot of people watch that movie and get annoyed by Liza Minnelli's performance. And similarly, I know a lot of people watch Marnie and think it is, it's, you know, it's over-the-top kind of histrionic sort of thing. So I think there is a kind of overlap there of that kind of vulnerable woman who doesn't really know how to express herself. So she chooses to do it through these kind of like you know overwhelming tears and sobbing and all that sort of thing but it kind of plunges you straight into maybe the mind of the character straight away by just that one kind of as I say she kind of zones out momentarily and just says yeah but you don't really love me mum and then she kind of zones back and of course no you do Uh and it all kind of falls back into place again and it's like she kind of starts to repeat herself but yeah I think that her and Mark are nice contrast to each other because 
not that I'm saying that Sean Connery's not got much range, but he's quite a stoic character. Like he's very like, you know, he's supposed to be this kind of businessman and he just sort of, you know, he does what he wants to do and there's a process from A to B and he's going to, you know, help to fix Marnie and blah, blah, blah. And it's all very logical. And I mean, maybe that says a, a wee bit about gender stereotypes of the time that she's kind of over the top and he's more quiet and logical, but they make a neat contrast to each other physically as well because he obviously towers over her and you know this Sean Connery kind of at peak sort of physical fitness and everything but I like this sort of explanation although I did find it quite alienating in terms of the sort of maybe themes or whatever I liked Tippi Hedren's performance it's definitely a lot more we get to see a lot more of her here than we ever did in The Birds for example. What kind of elements would you say in the movie did you feel were sort of typically Hitchcockian if we can use that as a <laughs> descriptive word what kind of elements in the movie made you feel like okay I'm in it now I'm watching a Hitchcock movie well there's the obvious the Hitchcock blonde element because Marnie goes from being this black haired raven-esque figure to a blonde when she changes herself and it's done in a very dramatic way there's Marnie's theme playing underneath it as she's like rinsing out all the black from her hair and then she she sweeps her hair back and it's all blonde um, Can I just say, as a blonde, that would never happen. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> one thing that really pisses me off about films is like people dye their hair blonde overnight. But yeah, no, sorry for interrupting. It was one of those points in the movie where I watched it and I was like, oh, here we go again. She's dyed her hair blonde in one shot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that wee bit reminded me of Gilda. Oh, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're introduced to the character of Gilda and it's yes. the the hair back and all that. Yeah. So you could tell it was a Hitchcock film from certain elements. There was a lot of the back projection which she mm-hmm. tended to use quite a lot. There was obviously the, the map painting at one point of the, the big ship at the end of the street. That was attacking. He got pelters for that at the time because it was really? so old-fashioned looking and everything, yeah. There was the use of the likes of fake thunder and lightning because thunder mm-hmm. and lightning, is, I, I don't know, I've never been in a situation where thunder and lightning are like you get in the movies where it's just this massive big flash in front just behind you and the screen and all this sort of stuff just enough to beautifully light you (laughs) yeah yeah so there was all that and obviously the use of like colors crimson is used an awful lot Mm -hmm. in the film to Mm -hmm. signify danger it's like a trigger uh, Mm -hmm. color and that's something that he uses an awful lot and well there was three particular scenes that i thought were very Mm hitchcocking one was the kiss between Mm -hmm. them after I think it's actually in that same scene where there's the thunder and lightning and the, the stuff comes all this stuff crashes into his office and he kisses her, but he kisses her by kind of moving his mouth <laughs> down yeah. her face and it's very close up and you, yeah. it's just it it looks absolutely fantastic and it it looks obviously very erotic and everything. I mean there was an interview with uh, Tippy Hedron about it and she said there was nothing even alluring about it. It's a very technical shot. All the lights are really close in. (laughs) The camera was (laughs) about a foot away from her, you know, so, but that kind of element was uh, sort of typical Hitchcock. There was another one where there was a party where Mm -hmm. they were having the big party and there's a crane shot where the camera slowly descends down the stairs and you're kind of thinking, what's going on here? You know, there's something happening and it opens the door and it's a big surprise. It's a surprise reveal the door which was excellent that, that really reminded me of him that really reminded me of do you know the shot in notorious where it goes down the stairs and then you just mm-hmm. see the is it the key in her hand that i was i was like this is like the exact same shot but yeah, yeah. i yeah That's i get what you mean and there yeah. was a third one where she is stealing money from mark's firm and the way the camera is positioned it's positioned right in the middle so mm-hmm. half of the shot is taken up with her it's a, a long shot so you see the, the entirety of the office mm-hmm. so you see her actually in opening up the safe and everything and then at the same time the cleaner coming in in the other half and it's just the, the, the way that it's positioned it's just like you couldn't really think I mean you've seen it done so many other times since then Tarantino's very open about his influences and one of yep. his influences obviously this type of long shot that they, they tended to use but Hitchcock was one of the sort of the pioneers the first one they really sort of brought it to the fore Hollywood film so through that you could you can tell yeah this is a typical Alfred Hitchcock film and it, it kind of puts you at ease as well because you know you're in good hands you know that mm-hmm. all the building blocks are there so you can enjoy the whole film because of that because all the elements are there for you to you know work on you, you don't think oh no this is going to be a wee bit different it's going to be yeah. really, you know. 
And then, of course, you get the penalty on the score. <laughs> yeah, oh, of course. And the and even just the costume, I'm pretty sure it's Edith Head that did the costumes for this as well. The suits are very safe. You know, you know that like they're, they're very familiar, even if you don't even know anything about movies. You look at the styles that Marnie's wearing and even the kind of sort of, I don't know if you call it like golf club sort of-esque gear that Mark features in quite a lot, you know, like the whites and the cottons and stuff like that. And I feel like that's, again, that's quite comforting as well. To me, it does feel like a different Hitchcock film. It doesn't feel like, you know, your big kind of blockbuster, like, you know, your Psycho or The Birds or whatever, because there's no clear and present threat. It's all, as you say, internalised. But I, but yeah, there are obviously elements. And as I, say, as, as I said earlier, when there's one scene where she's driving away and I think she actually uses the name Marion and it just reminded me straight away of, of Psycho of mm -hmm. her leaving the office having you know done the same there for one of the things that I'd read while I was kind of looking this up was some kind of reviewers and sort of theorists and whatever had said that they see Mark as Marnie's saviour and that thought had just never occurred to me because I used to sort of crack the joke that the only reason he helps it out is because he's desperate for getting his hole basically and <laughs> but on reflection I, I can see why some people kind of because he does kind of go through a wee bit of a personality change. At first, he's very rough and aggressive, and he just wants a wife to perform wifely duties, if we can put it that way. But there is a yeah. sort of softening to him. Do you buy into that whole concept of him being her saviour, or is that too much of a stretch? Not so much a saviour, but the way I looked on it, he was treating her like a project. He was treating her like a scientific experiment because he was using psychological techniques to try and get to the bottom of her or psychosis for a better word mm -hmm. but he was also applying he said he had like a background in zoological studies and everything so he was applying that kind of thing to it as well yeah. the kind of fight or flight elements that Marnie kind of showed in certain places so yeah it, I can see why he was trying to from a psychological point of view yeah he was trying to fix her so therefore yeah he was trying to save her but it did seem as if he was he was doing this for other reasons as well, rather than just getting it. Obviously, yeah, it was just wanting to get his end away. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, don't, I didn't quite understand because obviously back at the house there was, was it Lil? Uh-huh, yeah, Lil, uh, the sister. Yeah, or sister-in-law, yeah. It would have been weirder if it was his sister, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the sister-in-law who was obviously totally in love with him. Uh-huh. And he wanted nothing to do with her I, I don't think she I don't think she was interesting enough I for me it was like it was a she wasn't a challenge because she was so obviously infatuated and the fact that this woman was actually physically like obviously this was news to him that women could be physically repulsed by him but I think mm. that made it more exciting which is wrong on so many levels but I think it was the fact that you know Lil was literally throwing herself at him and that just that was of no interest to him. Which kind of ties in with what I was going to say next. The one sort of section of the movie that I feel has aged horribly, only because of the special effects that were available at the time, is the hunt. So obviously a massive visual metaphor for, you know, kind of Marnie and her life and, and Mark sort of chasing her and whatever. But it's, uh, that is the only bit of the film that made me kind of cringe a wee bit. I actually loved the big matte painting with the ship. That's really sweet. Mm -hmm. But the sort of bad visual effects of people getting thrown off horses and stuff like that, that has aged quite tremendously, I think. It's not really <laughs> lasted, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, there was actually quite a lot of work involved putting all that together. There was obviously mm -hmm. the location work, but there was work done in the, the studio for it as well. Now, for the close-ups of Tippy Hedron on the horse, it was a, it was actually a mechanical horse that they used for it. Oh, but you never, yeah, I you, thought you that. never really saw that because it was all close-ups on her uh -huh. expressions and everything. And apparently, the mechanical horse came from Disney. It was one that they had, and it was the best in the business at the time. So wow. uh, they hired it in order to use it. But they also used a treadmill in the studio with real horses. For part of it because if you see so. some of the scenes you'll see that especially Lil she is actually riding a real horse mm -hmm. she never actually did any, any location shooting she did all of shooting in the studio so this massive treadmill that they, they used for it. apparently that he wanted as much Hitchcock wanted as much realism as possible because yeah. using fake horses kind of like you say it does it could have looked a lot worse and you went you didn't need like close-ups on every single yeah. member of the hunt so they, they had to get people with real horses so 
he suggested using the treadmill and uh, everybody was saying, are you nuts? You can't use the treadmill on horses. <laughs> You're on horses to run on this thing. And he yeah. says, yeah, why not? And just because it hadn't been done before, there was no reason why they couldn't do it. And they brought the treadmill and trained up the horses. But apparently uh, Tippi Hedren as well trained for three months on her horse for those oh, right. okay. So it would be more realistic that she was like, totally mm-hmm. into horses and everything. And I, I quite like that that element of this, the, the story as well. Obviously, she had her own horse that she mm-hmm. used some of the stolen money for the upkeep of it and everything. So that was almost like a grounding mechanism for her. She, she needed, there was a reason for her to do what she was doing. It wasn't just about taking money. It wasn't yeah. for that. It was for, obviously, to try and show her mother that she was successful and also to sort of help ground herself by being able to go riding this horse and just losing herself in her thoughts and everything. So, yeah, that was good. But, yeah, when she fell over the wall, yeah, no. It didn't really yeah, which, again, kind of really took me out of it. But, actually, I get what you're saying because there was, like, it would... I'm not saying it sort of repeated itself, but it did in a sense and that every so often once she had maybe, I don't know, stolen from another place or had a you know confrontation with her mother she came back to the riding yard and it was quite clear that this was the thing that was sort of keeping her happy and you could tell that she was like almost like a different person like their you know posture and everything changed and she was happy when she was out riding the horse but yeah the kind of hunt scene in itself I was just like oh man that's just taking me right out of it and the thing is I want like as I say as alienating as some of the kind of politics and stuff was I was enjoying it and I was enjoying her performance I was also reading actually that I think yeah, I think they asked Grace Kelly to take on the main role, like to play Marnie, but apparently the Kingdom of Monaco said they would not have their princess playing a thief. And I just wonder, like, Grace Kelly to me was always very like delicate and composed and kind of icy, I think, as well. She was quite good at doing that kind of standoffish, aloof type of woman. I don't know if it'd be the same movie if it was her in the lead role. No, originally, like you say, it was meant for her. It was supposed to be the film that... Hitchcock was going to do right after Psycho, I believe. Uh-huh. And he'd, yeah. he'd, he'd bought the rights to Marnie based on the fact that it would have been perfect for Grace Kelly. And apparently they had agreed to do it and she'd got agreement from her husband and everything, but the, the film got delayed, I think it was. And then Grace had some sort of marriage difficulties, which meant that her husband was just like, no, I don't think it's a good idea if you start going back and doing other films and Hitchcock quite gracefully accepted it and says it's just a film you know there will be other times which obviously there weren't yeah she she was set for coming back and she well, the agreements and everything were in place for it so to rejig it afterwards obviously went on and did was it the birds that came after yeah so, yeah yeah and obviously Tippi Hedren was not and her performance in that got her the gig in Marnie as well yeah you would think Originally, after this mm-hmm. No, I was just going to say he would think after all the bodily torture she went through in the birds, she'd be like, fuck working with this guy again. Yeah, yeah, but it must be very difficult to say no to somebody like Hitchcock, you know, and be in one of his films. Apparently, the original story from which it came, Mm -hmm. it was a, a love triangle between Mark and Marnie and another man who worked alongside him. And that character was replaced by Lil. Well, that changes the dynamic completely, though. It changed it, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because apparently it was more a straightforward story in that way. Two guys and one one girl, which is something that has been done a number of times in Hitchcock Mm -hmm. films. There seems to always this sort of love triangle element. But Mm -hmm. it was something... Well, it it had been done before, and we will talk about that in a couple of minutes, obviously. But... I felt it did kind of change the dynamic. It would have been a different type of film if it had been two males in it. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think the the whole sort of... Marnie's the kind of centre point of all of this, and obviously because she is the kind of thief who's like on the run or whatever, but also there's so much contrast in the relationship between her and Mark, her and Lil are physically and you know emotionally very different people as well. Lil comes across quite strong-willed, quite determined, and she's this little petite brunette whereas Marnie's obviously the blonde by this point as well and obviously there's the really awkward dynamic between her and her mother as well and I can't remember the actress's name but I'm pretty sure she was not that much older than Tiffy Hedge and, and they've totally like grey-haired her like sprayed the talc on and drawn some wrinkles mm-hmm. on but she is at the centre of all of this obviously being the, the titular character and I think that if you'd have brought something else into the mix I think a love triangle would have undermined the whole story of 
unraveling who Marnie is. This is a very much a female-led movie and it's her story and how she chooses to tell it and when she chooses to allow it to come out fully. And I think if you just want a love triangle in the mix, it would just it would go a bit corny, I think. I mean, as, I see, as I've already said, the misogyny and whatever is quite clear throughout. I think adding another guy into the mix would have just made things a bit cringy. I don't know. Yeah. Just thinking back on the, the character of the mother, there's a, a a nice element of German expressionism in there as well, where mm-hmm. I think she comes up to see Marnie when, after she's told her to go to bed for a nap in the afternoon, of, of all things, yeah. uh, and she comes up to see her, and then she walks down the stairs and you see the shadow. Oh, yeah. The stairs. It's, it's very sort of Nosferatu. You're, you're kind of going, I've seen that before. I know where that is. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I know films. Uh, yeah, I know. That's when you do feel like you're sitting there with your kind of scholar hat on going, oh, yeah, I get all these references, mate. I know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it's definitely a film that's that's worth watching. I think it's a film that's it's quite shocking, but not in the usual, like, you know, there's not going to be the getting stabbed in the shower or the, the screeching violence or anything like that, but it is a film that will shock you i'm not sure it's a film that many people could emotionally connect with but i think that's kind of the point as well i think the whole point is you are supposed to be alienated by her because that's how all the other characters around her feel but i definitely think it's worth watching it's i can see why some people think it's like a kind of b movie or whatever it's not top tier but i think it's there there are good solid performances in there and there's very you know clear hitchcockian tropes or whatever you want to call them i think it's definitely an interesting movie and i think that when you look at you know hitchcock's films sort of going from you know the early stuff like the lodger and stuff like that right through to i think is it family plot that's the last one you can kind of chart where he is emotionally as well himself you know there's a lot of frustrations and studio things and stuff like that as well and I like this because it's it's quite garish, it's quite brash, the colours are very loud, you know, she goes from the extreme black here to the brassy blonde and there's a lot of contrast in it and I, I kind of love it for that, but as I say, it's not a film that you're going to go into and you're going to feel this, it's not going to make you scared and it's not going to make you connect with people, it does kind of make you feel a wee bit on the outside, but I think that's okay, I think that's the point of it, would you agree? Yeah, oh yeah, totally, it's... As, well, as I said at the, the top of the, the podcast, it was one that I didn't connect with the first time, but I mm-hmm. understood it better the second time because I went into it with a slightly different attitude. If you've gone with sort of more traditional attitudes, like you say, if you're hoping to root for somebody or you're wanting to get scared or frightened from the master of suspense, then you, you may not get that here, but it's it's definitely a, a, a rewarding film. It really is. Yeah. I know, I definitely agree. I think that, that I suppose there's, there's one connection between Marnie and Vertigo is that they're both based on books and seemingly what Hitchcock used to do was like blind buy books, like he would go in with like a fake name and stuff like that because he knew that if he went in as Alfred Hitchcock people would charge him a fortune for the rights so he decided just to go in as like, you know, Joe Blogs or whatever and that's how he acquired all these really cool scripts. So yeah, I mean the next film we're going to look at is is 1958's Vertigo, it stars um, my beloved Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. We'll just ignore the fact that there was like a 40-year age gap between them and, the, you know, they're obviously playing romantic interest in the film. That's fine. The movie's kind of, it's an interesting one. It regularly tops the sort of sight and sound, you know, top 100 movies of all time ever. It's considered a total masterpiece classic. There's, again, a wee bit like Marnie, there's so much of it that's very, very obviously Hitchcock and there's so much of it that is like wild and really progressive and really new and exciting. It centres around the character of, Scotty, played by James Stewart, and he is hired by a former friend, because he used to be a private detective, to track down his friend's wife, Madeline, and he thinks that his wife has gone crazy, she's convinced that she's something to do with an old painting, and he's asked basically Scotty to put on his detective hat one last time and work out what's going on. Now, Scotty has been in an accident, he nearly fell off a roof and has hurt himself so he's suffering from vertigo which is where the film gets the title from Ta-da! and so he's sort of dealing with this kind of illness a bit like near window he's kind of debilitated by his current situation so he's dealing with this illness 
Well, he's also trying to track down this mysterious woman, who, of course, again, is the classic beautiful Hitchcock blonde in a stunning grey fitted suit. It's been a while for me since I have seen the movie. I don't think I've actually watched it since uni. John, was this a recent watch for you or is this something you've come back to? It's something I've come back to. I've seen this film maybe four or five times over the years. It's been a couple of years since I've watched it, to be perfectly honest, and I was interested to watch it because I don't think I'd seen the restored version of it, which was the one on the DVD and Blu-ray release, which is kicking about just now. So, yeah, it was it was something that I, I thought I was familiar with, but with all Hitchcock films, there's always elements that are there to surprise you. The first one was the way that the first... 10 minutes of the film basically tells pretty much all of the story for you. It introduces the character of Scotty, it introduces how he got agoraphobia and therefore vertigo, it introduces Mitch, his friend, and who's madly in love with him. But Uh, firmly in the friend zone. (laughs) Yeah, oh yeah. Because she wears glasses and she has short hair. And then, like you say, it introduces the character that he's, I've forgotten the name, his friend, who he goes and visits and takes up the the offer. And then at the end of roughly about 10 minutes, he sees Madeline for the first time. And it's just, you can just see in his eyes that he's already completely obsessed by her. And it's just, it's a fantastic way to, to open a film. There's very few films that do that. A lot of them tend to tease things out for you and they, they don't kind of set the stall out right away. But this one totally does. It's in the same way that it completely unrelated, but Die Hard does exactly the same thing with the first 10 minutes. If you watch that yeah. again, everything you need to know about that film happens in the first 10 minutes. It's absolutely yeah. phenomenal. But it it works really well because of that, because, because you're set up in that way, mm-hmm. you just love what happens after that. It's probably what you would call a, a typical Hitchcock film because, like you say, it's got the elements of the, the older detective, it's got the, the blonde, it's got the elements, the, the mystery elements, it's got the fantastic locations, it's yeah. got the cars, it's got, I mean, the suits, oh, absolutely brilliant. And as I, I noted on Marnie discussion, mm-hmm. there's a scene quite early on where he's talking, when him and Mitch are talking, and he says, oh, you remember we were engaged for three months? And just right at that moment, the camera is so close up to her face just to get her reaction, and it's only her eyes that move, nothing else moves. And then it goes back to the sort of wide shot of Scotty lounging on the couch as if, you know, he's just made a funny (laughs) remark. And then he says, oh, yeah, but you broke it off after three weeks. And it goes back to the same shot of her, and she yeah. just does exactly the same. She just looks at him through the frame of her glasses and it's just this, you know nothing, mister. You're, you're just yeah. so out of touch with what I'm actually feeling here. Just, yeah. oh, it's amazing. Such it's, a perfect sort of way to get that whole dynamic between the two of them across. Well, that's the thing. And they often refer to you know, the sort of icy blonde and the, the character of, of Madeline, certainly, you know, nothing is given away. Like she's very, again, very stoic and, you know, there's the kind of issues of, you know, does she have mental health issues or, you know, emotional issues, whatever. But again, almost in a sort of turning Marnie on its its head, Jimmy Stewart's the one who's consumed by his emotions and, you know, literally just like following, you know, his, his lust for this woman that he's just seen and completely become enraptured with. Whereas she's very aloof and standoffish and, you know, she just, she wants to just, you know, gaze at her painting and she's very calm and collected and everything's very suave. So there's quite a kind of contrast to what was happening in Marnie. My first kind of thought when I watched it was, one, the title credits are just stunning. It totally, it's like trippy. And again, I don't feel like that's very Hitchcockian, but it kind of sucks you in because you're like, oh, there's all these colours and they're kind of swimming around and there's kind of graphic and you're like, what is this? And you get sucked into it, you know, every bit as much as the character Scotty does. But my first kind of thing was, is like, this is the most luscious, beautiful to look at episode of Columbo I've ever seen because it does tell you the entire plot in the first 10 minutes and you know exactly what's going to happen, but that doesn't take away from the fact that everything is like there's not a thing out of place and when you watch it like you really have to watch it because 
everything in every scene there could be you know a flower or a necklace or a particular carpet or a curtain and everything means something and obviously they use this color palette of red and green like quite obviously as markers throughout and once you start paying attention to that you're like that car's green that carpet's green those grapes are green that those curtains are and you just see everywhere and you do you kind of get sucked into this almost like the, and I'm not saying like on the same scale as the character of Scotty but you're seeing things everywhere that you just assume is dripping with subtext and whether that was a conscious choice or not I'm quite sure it was but you do you become sucked into this little world of Scotty and Madeline and their relationship and I, I understand why a lot of people think that it's, it's quite, I think Vertigo is quite a Marmite film I think some people really don't like it and obviously other people think it's the best film of all time I love it i think it's one of the strongest hitchcocks i think it's and they go back and as you said you know it's got the locations it's got the cars it's got the suits and it's got everything you want from a good movie to sort of keep you hooked from start to finish because of course i mean obviously we're not doing spoilers but there is quite a big switch and dynamic maybe three quarters of the way through the movie and again it takes you on this other sort of trip as well but looking at it you can see like oh well I think you know I recognize like David Lynch in that or I recognize Tarantino and of course there's their famous vertigo scene which I've, it's only just occurred to me is like damn near exactly the opening sequence of Mad Men yeah. which I never had noticed before but I was sitting watching that going I recognize that how do I know that and I was like that's Mad Men that thing, it's the exact same thing and it's just it's amazing that the film you know, that actually bombed and was really commercially like, you know, just was a disaster is still having that much influence on another kind of iconic kind of aloof cult TV programme. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why some people don't connect to it is because there's not a, an abundance of story to it. Mm -hmm. And the film takes its time telling that story. If you think about it, there's a sequence of maybe about 15 minutes where all that you're seeing is Scotty following Madeline. So he's driving, and he's just there's a lot of a lot of reprojection and stuff like that. Again, you're going, oh, I recognise that. But anyway, but he follows her about. So you, you see him driving. It doesn't just cut from one to the other to all the places that she actually goes to. You get all the bits in between of him just following her and mm -hmm. telling her. And then she goes into buy the, the the flowers, the bouquet of flowers, and there's an extended period there where you're just soaking in this character of Madeline because she, she's not doing anything all Scotty's doing is watching her obviously getting more and more obsessed as time goes on you can see it in his eyes you know it's almost yeah. so it almost becomes something physical in him because of the way he reacts to her because of that because of the, the whole time that it takes a lot of people could be going this is going to be boring this is really yeah. you know but for anybody who actually likes that sort of thing and I hold my hand up for that it's perfect and it, it yeah. works really well for me. So, yes, I fully understand why people would get annoyed by it, but they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> what I love as well is that, like, between the two characters, between Scotty and, and Madeline, you don't have a reliable narrator, essentially, mm -hmm. because you do, there's major question marks over, you know, at what point does Scotty stop being the detective and what point is he just a fucking stalker? And at the same time, you've got this Matt who you've been set up to believe is losing her mind. So straight away, you know, that, that little idea has been dropped and you're like, okay, well, we can't trust her either because she's clearly up to something. So the film doesn't ever let you rest because it does make you question everything that you're seeing. You're like, oh, well, was that right? Or did it, you know, did she look that way? Or what was that? You know, was there the way somebody said something in a slight tone? Was that something to do with, you know? So it does kind of make you question a lot of, you know what you're seeing which again obviously kind of plays into this whole idea of you know he's kind of losing his mind throughout it as well one thing that i thought you would appreciate actually is it claims to be the film with the first known use of the trombone shot right so there's the scene obviously like to make the stairs look longer and to emphasize this you know yeah. height and sense of vertical but i swear that when we watched m when she, the mother leans over the banister to try and call her child up for dinner, can they claim that's the first trombone shot? I think that was done decades before. I think with most things like that, when they claim to be the first, it's usually the the first commercial use of it, mm -hmm. commercially seen use of it, rather than. I mean, if you think about it, how many people would have seen M in the nineteen? Oh, it's too universal cultured. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and again, they, they use the same shot. They used that in Marnie as well, didn't they? They used a, a trombone shot, actually, uh, I think, in the final yeah. act of the film in yeah. the, the mother's house that they elongated the, yeah. the room and bedroom behind it. Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 it's strange how these things actually sort of gain some notoriety for that sort of thing. It was used quite sparingly as well. They used yeah. it maybe three times, I think. Yeah, it's not film. like, oh, heights. Oh, it, it's not yeah. overdone. That would just become cartoonish. But when it is used, it's used very, very effectively. And I think that, I mean, without going into too much detail, the scenes that they use them in obviously are this bell tower. And that in itself makes me feel ill because I just think claustrophobia, really dark, really tight space. And when it does sort of draw itself up like that, you are kind of a bit like, whoop, that feels, that looks like a long way to the bottom. So when it's used, the effect is incredible because it's not over the top. And I think, you know, Hitchcock, for all his sort of, you know, hyperbole and drama and all that sort of thing, he was never clownish and never cartoonish. And I think that's why this works particularly well. That shot, whether it is the first one to use it or not, I don't know, but the shot does work. What did you think of the sort of supporting characters in this? Do you think they were too far in the background and it was just really focusing on the sort of two main leads or do you think they had actually something to contribute to it? I mean, I kind of love the character of Midge, right? Because, again, she's like, you know, hangdog expression, like, obviously clearly in love with Jimmy Stewart and, and why wouldn't you be? He's just lovely. And she's this kind of, you know, she's talented and she's dainty and she's this little bird-like thing. But I don't ever feel like we get, apart from, as you say, that kind of flippant remark of like, oh, we were engaged. I don't ever feel like we get to know any of the other characters because I think, or maybe this is just me, but I feel like I become swept up in the Spotty Madeline thing and I, almost everyone else in the periphery, it's not that they don't matter, it's just that you do become kind of consumed by this and I feel like even when those two, characters, two kind of main characters are in scenes where there are other people, your focus is always on them, whether that's directly through camera work or it's just because nothing else seems to matter I don't know maybe I'm reading it wrong but I, I feel like out of all the supporting characters Midge is probably the most prominent but again it's kind of like she's the dump not, not dumpy friend that's not fair but oh she's the plain friend as I say she's got short hair and glasses so of course anyone looking at her next to you know this stunning like 20 year old Kim Novak in the finest Edith head suit with her hair all quaffered you know nobody's going to look twice do you know what I mean but I, mm. she's the kind of most prominent supporting character and even then I don't feel like we get to know that much about her. Definitely yeah I mean apart from her there was really just the the husband and <laughs> briefly I suppose the the bookseller who mm -hmm. went to for advice and that was about it. He came, came he came across as some sort of ex-Nazi or something anyway. The, the way <laughs> yeah was there, was, there was an accent going on yep. <laughs> There was a, a wee link between the 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 name of the bookshop, which I can't remember offhand, but it had something to do with shipbuilding. The name of the bookshop, oh, right, obviously, okay. he was actually went into the the shipyard to mm -hmm. take on the job at first and everything as well, which I thought was it because I, I I remember looking at the name, thought I better go and look that up, and it was it, it, there there are obviously small links in there. There was um, obviously a couple of signposted elements to the film with Marion's hair and as, as I mentioned the bouquet and the the necklace. Now mm -hmm. for all that I love this film I, I thought that that was a little clumsy in the way that they actually brought these things. Not not so much that they brought them to the screen the first time. They had to then reintroduce them mm -hmm. uh, in the form of a conversation between Scott and his client and he was saying oh have you seen the bouquet of flowers? You know, what do you, what do you think about the hair? Have you seen that? You know, yeah. as if you, you'd missed this and you, you didn't really miss it because when you get introduced to it the first time, there was a close up of this bun in her hair. Oh, and then, well, the camera, I... then the camera moves up to the painting she's looking at with the bun, and you're going, right, so there's a link there. So you don't need anything else. I, I, I get what you mean. And I almost, I, I don't know what the source text is like but I almost wonder if maybe like was that really complex was that really heavy or is it just because I don't know did Hitchcock think the actual the film was going to bomb because it was quite complex and so therefore he did put in these kind of signposts and things and obviously the film was a commercial failure which coincidentally he blamed on his two lead stars he said they had no chemistry but I don't know if it was because maybe he personally thought that it was maybe a bit kind of complex because it, it is quite a it's quite a wild ride compared to some of the you know, the mm -hmm. other kind of straightforward you know there's no birds attacking a 
bunch of kids or whatever it is quite complex so I feel like sometimes these things are kind of shoehorned in and and that happened as well in rear window and there's kind of a wee bit of nudge nudge wink wink in, in a shadow of a doubt as well and to a certain extent rope but I think that I almost feel like he put it in to sort of make the film more accessible and it's a shame because it doesn't need to be. It's a good yeah. movie, as you say. It sets its stall out very early on, early on, so it doesn't actually need that additional, as you say. Oh, look, there's a bun, and there's a bun. It's like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't require that trust that your that your viewer is going to go along with this. Going back to what you said about the chemistry between the two stars, mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting chemistry between them in terms of a sort of traditional romance because it's not yeah. that type of story. It's an, a story of obsession and deceit. So yeah. it's, it's very difficult, and it, for a lot of the, the film, it was a one-sided obsession. Obviously, yeah. that slightly changed as the, the film progressed and the characters got to know each other and everything like that, but it didn't matter that they didn't click, and yes, the, the age gap thing. They didn't try to disguise it, though, that's the thing. I mean... Oh, no, his hands are, like, really lover-spotted. Yeah, he's got greenness here, yeah. but he's still... He's Jimmy Stewart. Like, why would you not be in love? Well, I can't... The thing with the chemistry is he sees her and straight away he's like you can see the fire has been lit like as you see he does this kind of thing with his eyes and it's like oh my god this guy is head over heels you know straight away but she kind of spends a lot of the first kind of third of the movie I would say like walking about in a trance like she's very very total icy blonde and very aloof and she's you know there's a lot of posing and like delicately looking at things and sort of pointing at and like I don't I get I I kind of agree with you like there's not meant to be a chemistry there this is very much a one-sided you know totally falling in love with the subject sort of thing it's not meant to be a great love story yeah well I totally got that with the way that she acted within the first two thirds of the film there was obviously uh, we're avoiding spoilers here but there was a whole reason why she was acting that way there was a, a lot of look at me Mm-hmm. remember what I look like and remember what I'm doing and remember my odd behaviour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, it was icy, but there are reasons behind that. Obviously, I'm not going to go into any more detail on that. Go and watch a film, people. Watch it. Yeah. Watch it now. <laughs> oh, finish it's watching probably... listen to us. Aye, watch Marnie, then watch this and come back to us. I think the thing is, what I liked about it was it does, like, you know, Hitchcock's kind of like, they always say he's kind of like, not voyeuristic but there is this kind of like tingly like you're looking at something that you should be looking at like kind of the, you know mm-hmm. the, the kind of people and cycle sort of thing and I I feel like that's what almost she was kind of trying to provoke this sort of like I know that you're looking at me so I'm going to put on a show type of thing and okay it's not anything like ostentatious or crude or anything like that but it is like I feel like everything's very posed and I think it sort of plays into this whole notion of Hitchcock being a a voyeur or getting his kicks from, I don't know, his leading ladies or whatever. But it, to me, yes, that's what it yes. felt like. Yeah. yeah, there is a wee bit of that. I mean, if you think about the first time that you encounter her in the restaurant, you, mm-hmm. you see her on profile and he's able to take in everything about her so he recognises her so he'll be able to follow her and everything. Yeah, and it's very deliberate the way it's done. It's quite soft focus and all that oh, as yeah. well, you know. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that going on here. So. Yeah, and there's a lot of like doubling as well as the film progresses. So again, this kind of Hitchcock thing of this like, and it happens in loads of movies. Like you know, you chase someone through the, the streets and you tap them on the shoulder and turn them round and oh no, it's the wrong person. Mm. And that happens quite a lot as well. But I think this again, it kind of played into this whole thing of like, do you really know who she, who she is? Do, is he who he says he is? And what's actually going on here? And obviously, like I'll not go into any other spoilers to do with Dublin and stuff like that, but everything felt very like staged and then it, the more sort of things unraveled the more everything else it quite loose and the idea of identity and what people look like and who they are and is identity performative and is it is anyone really who they say they are or do you put on an act and whatever and I just kind of get lost in all of that again and I think that's why I love this movie so much is because every time I watch it it makes me think about it doesn't make me think about identity it makes me think about you know gender politics it makes me think about coercive control it makes me think about mental health and it's like it's all these different things just wrapped up in this luscious red and green bubble which by the way is very festive so consider this a bit <laughs> you probably could yes overall I think this is it is the masterpiece that a lot of people say now there are a number of films out there that are considered masterpieces that are there I don't know I don't know why they are but this is one mm-hmm. it's obviously the passage of time I think has been very kind to it and the fact that mm-hmm. a lot of people rediscovered it 
and champion mm-hmm. that is a sign that it's a good film. And as you say, the, the Sight and Sound 2012 poll put it at number one for, I think that was the first time that it had actually been there. It had been up and that's that's film professionals and film critics that are actually voting that. So it, it must be something that a film is gradually becoming more and more of an icon. It can only sort of stay there as far as I'm concerned. I don't think it, it's, it's actually really diminishing anyway. Is it your favourite Hitchcock? I think it probably is, yes. Don't want to peak too early, obviously, in our discussions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I think it's probably him and his team at the height of their powers because yeah. everything about it from the cinematography to the costumes to i mean the, the bernard Herrmann score mm-hmm. is just amazing it's always a, a sign of a good score when you can just listen to yeah. it on its own and get as much as you would actually watching the, the visuals and it's right from the very start like you say in the opening credits score fires in and a nice wee touch there was it started off it's in black and white. Yeah. And and then it, it just goes red once it, you get a close-up on the face. Yeah. But it's just that it seems to be everybody's sort of brought their A-game to it. And it's a fantastic story as well. So it just all kind of works together. It's, when you talk about classic Hitchcock, first thing I think of is Vertigo. There's an, a, another couple that are very close behind it. But yeah, I think this just noses it for himself. What about you? No, I mean, my favourite film of all time, never mind my favourite Hitchcock, is Shadow of a Doubt. I am kind of obsessed with Joseph Cotton's performance in that movie. I remember the first time I watched it. It was in a cinema. And I completely freaked out. Obviously, there's kind of breaking of the fourth wall and he looks directly down the barrel of the lens as he's talking about his murderous spree and I just remember going oh my god my whole body's like shivering I was like I don't like this but I couldn't stop watching it Vertigo's definitely up there just because of the the level of complexity and that's not to shit on like Psycho and stuff like that because they're obviously classics but for me when I watch this every time I watch it I notice something different I feel something different and it makes me think about different themes not to sound like a, an arse about it but it, it does make me kind of it challenges me every time I watch it and that's that to me is a sign of a, of a brilliant film. We've obviously started on a, a high with the yeah. two very good films which is obviously nice. Yeah. So for anyone that was tuning in expecting like a sort of Marnie versus Vertigo that isn't this kind of gig we're just here to talk about our love of them and not sort of pit them against each other. We're hoping to continue this Hitchcock series on the Movie Scramble podcast. If you have any ideas of films that you would like to see compared and contrast or just chatted about in general, the email address is podcast.moviescramble.co.uk. <laughs> I'm telling Simmy I got it right. <laughs> and obviously, because we can't have our movie scramble Christmas night out or go to any cinemas and stuff like that we have time in our hands so we're hoping to get this uh, this series up and running but as I say if you've got any uh, comments or you want to see a particular Hitchcock film discussed we are at movie scramble on all your usual channels it has been a pleasure I have been Mary and my esteemed colleague has been Big Sexy John (laughs) oh thank you very much (laughs) bye-bye bye